Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Okay, tonight we're going to be in Esther chapter 3. If you've been with us in the previous two chapters, um, you'll know some of the things that I'm talking about. But if this is your first time joining us with Esther, I just want to give you a little background. In the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned at all. However, if you look closely, you'll see his hand in every situation. Just like he gives us every breath we take, if we're really conscious of God's presence, we should be able to see it in many, many ways during the course of our day. Up here right now um, is a picture of the Sistine Chapel. So when you see this picture, you think of a certain artist. Can anybody tell me who that is? No? Michelangelo. Okay. So Michelangelo has this famous art, the Sistine Chapel, that you look at it, you see his handiwork in it. Whoever answered wrongly, you can say your answer now again. <laughs> Leonardo. Leonardo da Vinci. The artist who painted the Mona Lisa. So we see his hand in this work of art that he created. I don't think anybody's going to get this one. <laughs> and of course, we think of Walt Disney when we see this particular uh, picture. In the book of Esther, however, even though God's name is not mentioned, he's throughout the whole book. Just like you and I, during the course of a day, a week, a year, hopefully not that long, but during the course of a day or half a day, maybe we don't feel God's presence or his hand and what's going on in our lives. He's right there. He's present right there with you, whether you feel him there or not. Esther is a book of God's providence, his protective care. What's neat about the book of Esther, it shows once again that where men try to rule, God overrules men. Regardless of the purpose in a man's heart, God directs their steps. God's purpose will always be achieved. No one can stop it. A fool says in his heart, there is no God, and lives his life or her life godlessly. A God-led person has spiritual eyes. He sees with spiritual eyesight. You and I need to be aware that he is there throughout history, but most importantly, in our individual lives. 
There's a book I read when I was a younger Christian. It was called Practicing the Presence of God. And I just think of practice makes permanent. It's something that we should be aware of, God's presence in our lives. Very important that we're aware of his presence, regardless of if we're going through good or bad times. God is in hospitals. He's on deathbeds. He's in concentration camps. He's at 9-11 situations. He's, on, he's <clears throat> right there in sunny days. He's wet at weddings. He's when babies are being born. He's in every place at every time. God loves the world so much, sometimes he shakes the people in the world to try to wake them up, to try to get their attention towards him. We think of things in the scripture, the flood, the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea. Those are magnificent things that take place. But in Esther, we see day to day, year to year, happenings, things that go by, and then something takes place. It's not always evident of God's hand in our lives, but that doesn't mean He isn't working in each of our lives every day. Because as we know, God is everywhere. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God's will is being done in heaven. It's being done on earth. It's being done in places that we don't even know, the unknown places. If you were here during uh, Esther 1, it was the third year of King Asuerus' name, and I don't pronounce that too well, so his other name is Xerxes. I like saying Xerxes, so when you hear me say Xerxes, um, that is also the king that's in your Bible. He had a huge six-month party that we looked at in Esther 1. We were introduced to his queen, Queen Vashti. And again, this is the third year of his reign when we were in Esther 1. In Esther chapter 2, five years had passed. And there was a new queen selected because Queen Vashti wouldn't listen to the king when he asked her to come and dance and be presented before a, a room full of drunken men. Esther was chosen. She was just a girl that lived in the Persian Empire. There was a selection of, from among all the virgin young girls, and Esther was chosen. Mordecai is her cousin, uh, Esther's parents were both killed. Mordecai was her cousin, sort of adopted her, became like her dad, raised her, trained her in the ways of the things of God. At the end of Esther 2, we see there was a plot to ki uh, kill the king Xerxes. That Mordecai, because he was a servant of the king, and he used to be in the gates of the city where all the business was done. So he got wind that there was a plot to kill the king. So he told Queen Esther, she revealed it to King Xerxes, these two guys were hung 
on the gallows, and we saw last time that the gallows, it wasn't the hanging by the rope. They actually pierced the body of the people. They impaled them on a spike, and that was known as hanging on the gallows back then. One of the things we closed on is Mordecai wasn't really rewarded for saving the king's life or bringing the information to the king. How many times do you and I feel slighted because of things maybe we've done that have gone unnoticed? Well, we see Mordecai years go by and nothing's really taken place. And as we enter chapter 3 tonight, if you saw the movie 300, this was one of the scenes and King Xerxes would fit right in in our society today with all his body piercings. But he was the king. And if you remember something about the king, he was vicious. He was brutal. He was a man that you really didn't want to get on the wrong side of. So tonight, we're going to look at, again, we're going to see King Xerxes. We're going to be introduced to this guy, Haman. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Mordecai. So let's take a look at Esther chapter 3 and see what the Lord has for us tonight. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now here we see this man, Haman. Now understand that all scripture is profitable to you and I. Not only from the historical point of view, but from an individual point of view. Here we see this guy, Haman, being promoted, being elevated to like a prime minister. To being the right-hand man of the king. Probably before anybody got to the king, they had to go through Haman. He was second in power to King Xerxes. The problem is with Haman, as we're going to see, he was like an Old Testament Hitler. He hated the Jews. And there's a reason that he hated the Jews that we'll see in tonight's study. Sometimes God allows people to be elevated to high positions of power and influence. But even when they're in that position of influence, God uses them to accomplish his purpose. And that's something you and I need to take comfort in today with everything that's going on throughout the world, including our country. One of the great things we have to understand is a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So even though somebody has a vision or somebody has a plan that they want to achieve, understand the bottom line is God directs his steps, even if they have an evil intent. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, 
But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. So now there's something going on. Why wouldn't Mordecai bow down? Well, one of the things is Haman's ancestry. Something was, Haman came from a certain line of people. If you notice in that first verse, okay, he was the son of an Agagite. And we're going to look at that. There was a king, Agag, who was an Amalekite. And we're going to see this story unfold, that here is another Amalekite living about 600 years later that is now also hating the Jews and trying to get rid of them. So it's very, very interesting some of the things that we're going to look at tonight. One of the things I want you to understand that the Amalekites is a type of the flesh. So when we talk about this Amalekite tonight, Haman, and also some of his relatives. Understand that Amalekites we're going to look at tonight is a type of the flesh. That's going to be crucial in our study. Let's go to verse 3. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. Well, what's going on here is that going back, all the way back to the days of King Saul, the first king of Israel, Saul was told by Samuel the prophet, who was directly told by God, that when he went to war against the Amalekites, to kill them all, to kill all the women, all the children, all the men, all the cattle, don't allow anything to live that was part of the Amalekite kingdom. Well, Saul went and he killed all the women. He killed all the children. He killed all the men. He killed a lot of the animals, but he kept the better animals and brought them back as booty for his kingdom. He also kept one person alive, and that was the king of the Amalekites, who also was an Agagite. Somehow, during that time, this king, this enemy king, A son was born to him. Even though Samuel the prophet, when he confronted King Saul, Samuel actually killed King Agag, cut him up into pieces. But he had already impregnated a woman, and later on the descendants came all the way down that 600 years later, there would be an enemy from the Agagites, the Amalekites, trying to wipe out Haman and the Jewish race. King Saul himself, who disobeyed God, 
The kingdom was taken away from King Saul and given to David, the shepherd boy. King Saul was killed by an Amalekite. All because of disobedience. But remember what you and I want to see tonight beside the historical thing is that it's a type of the flesh. It's a type of the sin nature. These Amalekites. We don't want to have any part of the Amalekite in our flesh, in our sin nature. We want to kill it. Because if we don't kill that sin in our life, it will kill us. And that's important in this story that we're looking at. Mordecai, again, was an older man, but he was a man that knew the Scriptures. He knew where this guy Haman came from. When I first was reading the story, and I came to verse 3, and the king's servants were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, hey, why, don't, why do you keep transgressing the king's man? Why don't you just bow down and pay homage to this guy? He's second in command of the kingdom. Now understand, Abraham and other uh, fathers of the Old Testament would bow down. They would pay homage to, out of respect, but they would never bow down and worship someone. We think of Daniel never bowing down to worship the idol. So it was okay to bow down out of respect. But Mordecai wouldn't do this because he knew the history of the Amalekites. He knew the history of where this guy came from. And he refused to bow down. And we can see in verse 4, Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. And probably along with being a Jew, he told them, hey, these are our mortal enemies throughout history. The Amalekites have been trying to wipe out the Jewish race. So they brought this to Haman's attention in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage... Haman was filled with wrath. Now let's take a look at this guy, Haman, for a minute. The Old Testament Hitler. This guy was second in command to the king. He had everything he wanted. There was nothing he didn't have. He had money. He had power. He had everything. Prestige. But there was one thing that irked him. This Jew, who would not bow down to him, who would not pay him the respect that he felt was due him. And it irked him. It bothered the heck out of him. So much so that we go to verse 5 and we see what was revealed in Haman's heart. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the power or of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, the people of Mordecai. 
Remember, the people of Mordecai was the Jewish people. There were 15 million of them in the Persian Empire. 15 million of them. So it wasn't just a small number. And he didn't just want to wipe out Mordecai. He wanted to get rid of the whole race. You and I have to see this as a satanically plotted strategy of planting in the seeds of these men to destroy the Jewish race. Satan's been trying to do that since the first man and woman in the garden. Why? Well, back in the Old Testament, Satan felt if he could destroy the Jewish race, a savior would never be born. It would thwart all prophecy. Today, 2017, we know there are those people, the radical Islamist terrorists, there are the people in Iran, or the government of Iran, and other nations surrounding Israel that want to push them into the sea to destroy them, annihilate them, kill them. Why? The Savior has already come. Well, Satan, in some warped way, feels if he can destroy the nation of Israel, that God can't fulfill his world, a word of restoring them, bringing them back to where they're going to honor the one true God. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Amalekites, throughout the generations, they've been warring with the Israelites. Now, we saw in a previous verses that Mordecai would not bow down. When I first read this, I was just thinking of this, that, you know, maybe bowing down was a form of worship. And Mordecai knew the commandment that there is only one God and there should be no other gods before him. And then, of course, we see in Matthew where Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him you shall serve. But it goes deeper than this for Mordecai. He knows what the Amalekites have done throughout the history to the Jewish people. In chapter 1 of Esther, we saw the territory that was covered by the Persian Empire. If you can uh, see the vastness of, up there. It goes from India to Africa. It covers Jerusalem and parts of Egypt. It was massive, a massive area that we're talking about here where the 15 million Jews lived. So in verse 6, we see he doesn't want to just go after one man. He wants to go after the whole race. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year 
of King Xerxes, they cast Pur, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now, it just happens that we're in March right now, and this month, Purim will be celebrated by the Jewish people. I believe it's a week from this Sunday, is Purim. Now, in Persian culture, they used to do things by chance. Uh, Pur is sort of like a dice. They would roll the dice. They would, they would be a game of chance. They would just take guesses at what was going to happen. So here we see Haman using this Pur to come up with a time that he was going to uh, go through with his plot to kill all the Jews. But first, he had to sell it to the king. Remember, in the first chapter, we talked about how they used to come together and have drunken parties at their business meetings. And sometimes, if they weren't drunk enough and they didn't like their decision, they would keep drinking more to make their decisions. That's how they made their decisions. Crazy. So you can imagine how Satan just had a field day with people who were open up to different spirits. So we see here in this casting of the purr that what took place is that the time of the slaughter of the Jews was going to be the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So in verse 8, then Haman said to the king Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. That was true. The Jewish people were scattered throughout his kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples. That is true. You have to remember that the pagan nations were idol worshipers. They were party animals. Everything went. Whatever was good in their heart, in their eyes that they wanted to do, they went after. The Jewish nation was different. They had the laws and ordinances of God. God elevated them to a higher level. He showed them how they should live, what they should do, and that there was a God in heaven above that they were going to meet one day. And they do not keep the people, um, the, the laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. That was not true. They were not rebels against the society. They followed, they were good servants of the kingdom. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. So here is Haman trying to sell this to the king. Remember, too, there were probably having a few they were feeling good, and Haman, the devious person he was, waited till the king wasn't in his right mind to try to influence him. And the king, in verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So now he's appealing to the 
monetary, the finances. 10,000 talents of silver was like $30 million back then. The kingdom itself would bring in about 15,000 talents per year. But this was like $30 million if we look at it at our money. That if it pleases the king, let this go forth. And now he's saying, I'll pay $30 million into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Hitler, during World War II, financed his war machine with the possessions of the Jewish people that they were killing. The things that they took from their homes, the bank accounts that they emptied, the jewelry, the clothing. The war machine of Hitler was financed this way. And so this man, Haman, was doing, almost, was doing the exact same thing. He knew that if he killed 15 million Jews, that he would have a lot of money that he could easily pay himself back for the money that he put out. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Amedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So here the king gives his signet ring to Haman. Haman now has the full authority of the king to back him in whatever he signs with that signet ring. Crazy. If you remember in verse 1 what took place with the Queen Vashti, when she would not come in to dance before be paraded around before all those drunken guys and the king. She was banished. She was no longer the queen. A new queen, Esther, was put in her place. But remember what we talked about, that what would it have been like if the king didn't do anything? If he just let Queen uh, Vashti rebel against his request. What kind of effect, ripple effect, would that have throughout the kingdom? Well, it sort of sets the stage for this. There's a signet ring now of the king, and this order will go. The people are going to follow it because he knows if he could do it to his wife, the queen, what could he do to us, people he doesn't even know? So as we see in 11, the king said to him, well, the money and the people are given to you. Do to them as seems good to you. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. And a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script and to every people in their language. In the name of King Xerxes, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. So whatever language had to be done to get this decree out, it was being done. And remember also that they had like the Pony Express back then. Every 14 miles, there would be stables of horses. So a guy would ride to 14 miles to one stable, get on another horse and go to the next to keep delivering the messages. Isn't it something how this evil person 
got the word out to the whole kingdom. How about you and I getting the word out, the word of God out, to the area that we are in, our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our churches, the people that God brings along our path. Verse 13, And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. One of the things that's interesting when this decree was going out on that uh, 13th day of that first month, that was the night, that night was the beginning of the Passover for the Jews. When the decree was going out throughout the land to destroy the Jews. It's interesting if you look at Jewish holidays and some of the things that have taken place in history on Jewish holidays. It's fascinating. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. These guys, what did the king do? Did he really understand? Did he think it was just a few people that were rebelling? A few people that weren't following his edict? Did he realize that 15 million people were going to be killed and the effect that that would have on his province? Probably not in this drunken state that he was in. But you know who knew what he was doing? Haman. Haman was sitting down breaking bread with the king at the end of this chapter, knowing exactly what he was doing. There's an anti-Jewish spirit throughout the land, throughout the world today. Understand it's driven by none other than Satan himself. Whether it be anti-Semitics, whether it be terrorists, the hate for the Jewish nation and the Jewish people is very strong. There are those today who want to kill, annihilate them. We talked about the Iranian government. We talked about the terrorists. But I'd like to also give you a heads up about the church, the Christian church, who believes in this replacement theology, believing that the Christians have taken the place of Israel in the Scriptures. It's sick. It's sad because what that does It can lead for Christian people to non-support the Jews, especially when they're facing adversity. God's promise to the Jews will be fulfilled. He is a God of his word. He's not going to change what he says in his holy scriptures. 
you and I might wonder why certain things take place in our individual lives. Understand that we saw in Esther 1, it was three years into the reign of the king. Esther 2 was seven years into his reign. Chapter 3 is 12 years into his reign. Years are going by. In chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, we see that the king, there was a plot to assassinate him. Within 14 years from that time of that plot, he will be killed. And we'll see that later on in the chapter. So these years are going by. People's lives are being affected. Your life and my life, we might not always understand exactly what's going on, but understand that every decision that takes place, that happens in our lives, not the decisions we make, but the Lord is in control of what comes down the pike in our lives. We've got to understand that. And our trust has got to be in the Lord. We don't under, always understand the things that are going on. We just have to understand the God who's in control of those things. As I close tonight, remember I was saying that the Amalekites are a type of the flesh, a type of the sin nature. Amalek was an actual person who later became a leader of a clan which became a nation of the same name. Amalek was a grandson of Jacob's brother Esau. In Genesis 36.12, we're introduced to Amalek. It says now, Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, son of Esau, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So all the way back, 700 years before the story we read in chapter 3 tonight, these Amalekites were created. They were born. But failure by one man to wipe them out comes back to haunt almost 700 years later to try to wipe out a nation of 15 million Jewish people. Understand that failure in your life and my life to be vicious with our sin can have long-lasting consequences for not only us, but our family, our friends, for generations to come. It says in Romans 5.19, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Understand, if you're here tonight and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, as Galatians 2.20 says, that you and I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you and I who live, but it's Christ who lives in you and I. And the life which we're now living, like right now, today, and the next hours, and if the Lord wakes us up in the morning, is the life we live by faith in God's Son who loves you and I and who gave his life for you and I and gave you and I his Holy Spirit to bring us through this journey of life. The thing that hits me in this chapter is to be vicious with your sin. The Lord is shedding light on something in your life tonight. There's a reason for that. Be vicious with it. 
It's like that Amalekite that will show its head up later in your life and try to take you down. Destroy, kill, and annihilate that sin. Destroy it. Be vicious with it. Stay away from the people, the places, the things that cause you to stumble and sin. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you. Thank you.